The title of my sermon is The Surpassing Worth of Christ, which we sing about today. Wasn't that sweet? He's worthy. He is worthy. We are unworthy. <laughs> we are unworthy of the one who is most worthy. Uh, I hope you get that from today's passage. That is my big idea. We are unworthy of the one who is most worthy. Who am I? Anyone ever ask that question? Who am I? Who am I? What am I to do with my life? Anybody? Can you relate to those two questions, those massive questions pertaining to identity and purpose? Who am I and what am I to do with my life? People have spent their entire lives and much of their money seeking answers to those two questions and to no avail. You know, history, I love history, history is full of men and women who have achieved and accumulated all that this world has to offer, and yet joy, true, meaningful, lasting joy, still, still eludes them. Everyone longs for meaning and purpose. Is true? Everyone longs for meaning and purpose, but it matters where you look. That's everything. It matters where you look. If, if you look to the world for meaning and purpose, then you will be perpetually disappointed. Only Christ, only Christ, only Christ can give our lives true and lasting meaning and purpose. Now, our passage is organized around two big questions addressed to J.B., otherwise known as John the Baptist, Number one, who are you? John, who are you? And secondly, why are you baptizing? <laughs> so our passage is organized around those two big questions addressed to John. John, who are you? And what are you doing? What's your purpose? Why are you baptizing? Again, these two questions related to John's identity and purpose make up the two halves of our passage. Now, John is essentially on trial in our passage. He's on trial a group of priests and Levites are sent from the Pharisees in Jerusalem to question John. This is an interrogation. And the mood, if you, if you were listening, the mood is intense. And they're seeking answers to the following two questions. Who are you, John? And what are you doing? Uh-oh. We're all here. Okay. What this tells us is that John's activities were causing quite the stir. As one commentator notes, the Jerusalem authorities kept a watchful eye on John's activities. And this cast an ominous shadow forward on Jesus' own ministry. I mean, if they're watching John carefully, who else are they going to watch carefully? Jesus, the one that John is preparing the way for. So again, the first half of our passage deals with the identity of John. And John boldly testifies before the Jews, before the religious authorities. So where does our passage begin? Point number one, John's identity. Let me read verses 19 to 23, for this is the first half of our passage. John's identity. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you, John? 
He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, it's strange that he began with that, and I'll come back to it. And they asked him, okay, so what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. All right, we're going to stop there. John's identity. That's what we're looking at first. Again, what's the situation? A group of priests and Levites from Jerusalem are sent to find out who is John. What's he doing? Why is he doing it? Now, there's something we need to see at the outset. I wonder if you caught this. The group questioning John is sent. They're sent. Did you catch that? They're sent from where? From Jerusalem. John 1.22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. John 1.24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Why is this important? Why is this significant that this group was sent? Because John, John the Baptist, is also what? He's also sent. Remember John 1.6, a few weeks back. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Whereas the Jews from Jerusalem, this, this religious group from the authorities, whereas the Jews from Jerusalem are sent by men, John is sent by, sent by God. And this is meant to validate John's testimony. Now, the interchange between John and this scrutinizing group from Jerusalem is interesting. The interchange begins with this question from the Jews, who are you? Now, oh my goodness, notice how John begins. Notice how he responds. He could have said anything. I mean, again, if I ask you, who are you? I'm sure you're armed and ready with the response. Maybe you'll think about it. Where could I go? Hmm. I'm a father. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm a worker. I'm a Christian. Who are you? Now, again, John could have said anything. But he doesn't just say anything. I mean, he could have even pointed to the supernatural events surrounding his birth. But instead, he begins very simply by stating who he is not. Isn't that odd? Who is he not? He declares, I'm not the Christ. Who are you, John? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. John wanted to make sure that he was not confused for the Christ, the one that he came to prepare the way for. Now, the Christ was at the center of John's ministry. But as we'll learn shortly, John came to prepare the way for the Christ. Now, what is meant by the title Christ? Messiah. Good. This title typically follows the name Jesus throughout the New Testament. We read of Jesus Christ. Now, the title Christ comes from the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word, Moshiach. Messiah, it means anointed one. 
Who was anointed in the Old Testament? Kings. Kings. The Messiah would be the promised king from the line of David who would rescue and rule over God's people. That was the expectation. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He was the promised king from whose line? David's line who would do what? Again, two R's. He would rescue and rule over God's people. John candidly confesses that he is not that person. I'm not the Christ. It's not who I am. Now, this results, his response results in two follow-up questions from this group. And the questions are aimed, again, at John's identity by holding up two more possible figures. Okay, so he's not the Christ. Hmm, who could he be? Verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. (laughs) Are you the prophet? Now, they didn't say, are you a prophet? That's different. They said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, why Elijah? Was that strange to anybody? Why would they ask that? I mean, Elijah's time has come and gone. It was believed. It was believed in the first century. This period called Second Temple Judaism, Jews believed during this time that Elijah would be a prominent figure in the last days in relation to the coming Messiah and the inbreaking of God's kingdom. We see support for this in Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the Lord says, I will send you Elijah. Whoa. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, it was promised that the prophet who never died, but was taken up into heaven, who's that? It's Elijah. He would be sent by God before the day of the Lord. You know, when you think about it, John the Baptist kind of resembled who? He kind of resembled Elijah. His description, Mark's description, the Gospel of Mark, his description of John the Baptist, you can read about it in Mark 1.6. He was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And if we go to 2 Kings 1.8, who else is described just like that? Elijah. And if you look at their two messages, they're very similar. John the Baptist is preaching what? He's preaching a, a message of warning, a, a message of judgment, just like who? Elijah. And yet, John the Baptist quickly denies literally being the returning prophet Elijah. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. (laughs) Now, what's interesting, and this may be confusing, so I'm going to try to clarify and shed light so as to leave you not confused. What's interesting is that in the other Gospels, Jesus does identify John the Baptist with who? With Elijah. This is Matthew eleven thirteen to 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, referring to John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, maybe you're wondering, what's going on here? 
is John uh, Elijah or not? Now, Elijah did appear. Do you remember when this was in the Gospels? Mark 9, Luke 9, he appears on the mountain of transfiguration with Moses, another important Old Testament figure. And essentially what that communicates is that the law, symbolized by Moses, and the prophets, symbolized by who? Elijah, bear witness, they testify, they point to who? Jesus. Okay, so we get that. However, we get clarification in Luke's gospel from the angel Gabriel, and I'll explain. This is Luke 1, 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha. He'll go before him, before Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, John, although not literally Elijah, fulfilled the prophecy made about Elijah in Malachi. He came in the spirit, he came in the power of Elijah to prepare a people for the Lord. So once John denies being Elijah, the group then asks, okay, are you the prophet? They don't ask, are you a prophet, but rather, are you the prophet? Referring to a specific figure, obviously. This too, the prophet, was a figure promised in the Old Testament. We find this in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Listen to this last part. It is to him you shall what? You shall listen. Now, the Jewish leaders should have known better. Here's what I mean. The question of whether or not John was the prophet was redundant. Why? Because John had already denied being who? The Christ. The Messiah to come and the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, are one in the same. I'll give you two examples of this, okay? So the prophet promised and the Messiah were one in the same. He's already denied being who? I'm not the Christ. Peter, in his Acts 3 sermon, associates the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18.15 with Jesus Messiah. They're one and the same. Now, the Father, too, on the Mount of Transfiguration, identifies Jesus as both the Christ and the prophet from Deuteronomy. When he says to Peter, James, and John, listen to him. Where do we hear that language, listen to him? It's back in Deuteronomy 18.15. It is to him you shall listen. So the Father says, he speaks on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John, talking to Jesus, this is my beloved Son, you shall listen to him. Son of God was a famous title, a well-known title for the Messiah. So the Father says, this is the King promised, listen to him. Where does that language come from, listen to him? Deuteronomy 18.15, the promise of the prophet to come, it is to him you shall listen Again, John denies being the Christ. He wants that to be clear. He's not the Christ, but he came to prepare the way for the the Christ. Now, this is so cool. When we get to the end of John's gospel, we are meant to juxtapose, to compare John the Baptist's confession, his threefold confession, with Peter's threefold what? Denial. Denial. So three times... 
John the Baptist confesses, I'm not the Christ, and then three times, what does Peter do? He denies the Christ. So John denies being the Christ, whereas Peter simply denies Christ. John confesses, and Peter denies. Now finally, oh, finally we come to the moment of clarity. The group sent from the Jews in Jerusalem, they appear exasperated. So they said to him, verse 22, who are you, bro? I added bro. But it's like, who are you? Come on, man. Like, stop keeping us in suspense. Who are you? We need to give an answer. It's getting late. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What say you? How does John respond? Again, he points back to the Old Testament, this time to the book of Isaiah. Verse 23, he said, here it is. The moment of truth. The question is finally going to be answered. Who is John? Who is he? He's not the Christ. That's abundantly clear. So who is he? He said, I am the voice. I am the voice, I know. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now, what stands out about John's answer? The language from Isaiah looks ahead. Everybody say, looks ahead. Good, well said. It looks ahead to God's kingly entrance. Isaiah 40. I would encourage you to read all of it later today. Isaiah 40 speaks of the Lord's dramatic entrance. His dramatic entrance into the world, into time and space, as both a mighty warrior and a compassionate shepherd. Okay? So the Lord is going to come both as a mighty warrior and a compassionate shepherd. He will fight against the enemies of God's people and he will gather his sheep like a caring shepherd. Now Isaiah 40 represents one of the most well-known new Exodus passages. There's that language again. We've talked about the new Exodus. It's a massive theme in John's gospel. What was the first Exodus? It was the moment of rescue for God's people. He delivered them from slavery. The book of Isaiah looks ahead to a new Exodus when God would come again to rescue and deliver his people. Isaiah 40 represents one of the most well-known new Exodus passages in Isaiah. A voice of one crying where? In the... Okay, so that setting, the wilderness, what does that remind you of? The desert, the wilderness, what event? The what? The exodus, right? So the, the desert, the wilderness setting is reminiscent of the first exodus. John is proclaiming that the Lord is about to rescue his people from slavery once again, just as he had done in the days of Moses. Now, this is the best part. This is the best part. What's interesting, what's interesting about John's use, John the Baptist, his use of Isaiah 40, don't miss this, it's subtle, is the subject. John, now listen, this is so helpful. John identifies himself as the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the, the Lord. In the Hebrew there, Yahweh. Yahweh. He's preparing the way for Yahweh. 
forgot. Who shows up? Who shows up? Say it. Jesus. Okay. We are meant to see Jesus as the Lord, as God. Now listen, I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. My older sister, I told you, is a JW. This is the first place I take them. I always ask, hey, do you know Isaiah 40, verse 3? Have you read Mark 1 and John 1? Well, I mean, can I, can I take you there? John identifies himself as the voice, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for, I'll say Jehovah. Yahweh, Yahweh, who shows up? Jesus, Jesus is, he's the Lord, he's God. Isaiah 40 looked ahead to the wonderful day of salvation, the new exodus. John the Baptist is saying that day has arrived, and it's arrived in Jesus. Get ready, prepare yourselves. John was calling people to repent, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus as their Savior. Church, what is our job today? What's our job today? It's the same. It's the same, namely, to prepare people for for Jesus. To point people to Jesus. To call people to turn from their sin and to look to Jesus. You know, the language of Isaiah 40 is unique. It speaks of God re... Now listen to this. Keep reading Isaiah 40. It talks about valleys being raised up and mountains being brought low. That's strange. It speaks of God, listen, reworking his creation to prevent any and all impediments to himself. When he comes, when the Lord comes, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain brought low so that all eyes can be fixed on who? Christ, Jesus. One brother notes the task of witnessing to Jesus today is similar. Clearing away obstacles that may keep people from coming to Jesus. The most glaring being their sin and need of repentance. You know, John the Baptist saw his prophetic role as simply saying, not me, but him. That's John's message in a nutshell. Not me, but him. Can you say that with me? Not me, but him. That's John's message in ministry. Not me, but him. Not me. But him, he wanted all eyes, all eyes fixed on Jesus. John's sole role, his sole role was to point people to Christ, to get God's people ready for salvation in Christ. Any thespians out there? What did you call me? What's a thespian? Good, an actor. Anybody been in a play? Believe it or not, I've been in my fair share. No way. I have been. I've been in a few. Church plays, okay? Never the leading character. They know better. I've been like the supporting staff. You know, if you're in a play, if you're in a play, there's a lot of jobs. There's the person who controls the lights. I don't think people want that job. Maybe some do. Most people want to be a main character. They want to be in the limelight. But there's one job that's often overlooked. It's viewed as very insignificant, but it's the most important job. Can you guess what it is? It's the curtain operator. 
the guy that does this? <sighs> you know, I'm just picking my nose. That's the, anybody can do that, but, but why is that job so important, the curtain operator? It allows the audience, listen, it allows the audience to see what they came to see. The audience, if you've been to a play, waits in great anticipation for the curtains to be pulled back so that they can see the main event. Christians are a lot like curtain operators. We're not the main event. We're not. Again, what's John say? Not me, but but him. We're not the main event, but we are tasked with pulling back the curtain to direct everyone's focus on Jesus, who is the main event. Amen? How are you getting on with that today? Curtain operators? How's that going? Are you pulling back the curtain? Are you showing people Christ? Are you proclaiming him to friends and family members, co-workers, classmates, neighbors across the street? You know, you're probably tired of hearing this 1-4-P challenge. But who's doing it? Honestly. Find one person in your relational world that doesn't know Christ, that's not trusted in Him, and commit to four things, four Ps. Start praying for them. Pray for God to save them. Pray for God to open their eyes. The second P is plan. Plan how you're going to engage them. If it's a family across the street, plan to invite them over for dinner. Number three, practice. Make sure you are practicing the gospel before them, that you're actually being a light, that you're showing them Christ through your life. But listen, evangelism cannot stop there because evangelism assumes a message being proclaimed. And what's that? That's the fourth P. You've got to proclaim. You've got to tell the good news to that person. So one 4P challenge, think of one person in your relational world who doesn't know Christ. Start praying for them, planning how you're going to engage them. Make sure you're practicing the gospel before them. And then fourthly, you've got to what? You got to proclaim the good news. Amen? I think about our culture. There is so much being said in our culture today about identity, right? It's frustrating. It's saddening. People find their identity in so many different things today politics, their career, a relationship, a fleeting but popular movement. John's identity was in Christ. Do you know that? John the Baptist, his identity was in Jesus. His message was simple. Not me, but him. Not me, but him. Again, John didn't present his impressive pedigree to the Jews from Jerusalem. He could have, but rather he presented who? Christ. In what or in whom is your identity? Where are you currently looking for meaning and purpose? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Find your value. Find your meaning. Find your purpose in Jesus. Amen? You look everywhere else for meaning and purpose, and I promise you, you will be perpetually disappointed and let down. Only in Christ. I hope all of us can say with John, not me, but... But him. But him. Now, before moving on to our, our next point, I'd like to make one more observation. This is helpful. And I've said this multiple times in multiple ways. 
in multiple places, actually. I love the Old Testament. I do. I'm thankful for it. It's God's word. Amen? Man, you will be hard-pressed to really appreciate the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament. It's going to be events happening rather than fulfillment of promise. But let me tell you, I'm going I'm to distill down the Old Testament into two twin promises. Okay? Take this home with you. Here are the two twin promises found in the Old Testament time and time again. Here they are. Number one, God is coming to save the day. Woo! Amen, right? I mean, God is coming to save the day. And number two, God's promised king is coming to save the day. Wait, what? What? I thought God was coming to save the day. Yes. But then you said the other promise is God's coming king is going to save the day. Now, we see this in multiple places where these two figures appear side by side. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. God promises, I'm going to come as a shepherd, and I'm going to gather my scattered sheep. Yes. But then you keep reading, and it says, I'm going to send a shepherd from the line of David, who is going to be the shepherd over my people. What? God, are you coming, or are you sending this king? Yes. Go to Isaiah 52. God is going to come forth, bear his mighty arm, fight for his people, save the day. And then you read the next chapter, and it talks about a suffering servant who's going to be pierced and crushed so that we can have peace with God. Wait, what? Is God coming or is this king coming? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jesus is truly God and the promised Savior King to come. Both prophetic promises intersect in who? They intersect in Jesus, declaring God's faithfulness to his saving promises. Aren't you thankful? Now, we've answered the first question regarding Jesus' identity. What's next? Number two, John's purpose. John's purpose. It's going to be a much shorter point, but listen, please. Please listen. Verses 24 to 28, this is the second half of our passage. We've looked at John's identity. Now we're looking at his purpose. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, the strap of whose sandal, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to untie. Now, I'm going to put that in its cultural context, and you're going to be like, what? JB said that? He did. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, the main question here is found in verse 25, then why are you baptizing? Now, before we get to John's answer, let's recall John's general purpose for coming revealed in John 1, 6 to 8. This was a few weeks back. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He's not the Christ, but he came to prepare the way for the Christ. 
Here we come to John's answer in verses 26 and 27. Why are you baptizing? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, there's three things that we need to pay attention to here. Number one, are you ready? Number one. First, John came to baptize with water. You got it. Number two. Second, his baptism was to prepare people for one who is superior. That's number two. Okay? He's preparing people for one who is superior. Number three, the Jews from Jerusalem were oblivious to this great figure. They didn't recognize him. So three things we got to get. Now, the rite of baptism was already in use during the first century. There were these things called mikvotes. They were like ceremonial baths. And the Jews would wash in them to become ritually clean. Baptism was used in purification rituals and was associated with such passages as Ezekiel 36.25. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Now the act itself, the act of baptism, John's baptism, is different from our baptism, by the way. Okay. This baptism that John was doing, it looked back to God's people passing through the waters of judgment during what event? The Exodus. What waters? The, the Red Sea. You know, Mark's gospel declares John's baptism as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We should see John's baptism as preparatory. What does that mean? As getting people prepared, as getting people ready for the coming king. It was a symbolic but tangible action to show, I'm ready. I'm turning from my sin because the king's coming. And when the king comes, I want to be what? I want to be ready. It symbolized a desire to be found pure and set apart at the coming of the king of promise. So through his baptism, John the Baptist, listen to this, was seeking to point people to the only one who can make them truly clean before God. And who's that? Christ Jesus. And this is the second thing that we're meant to see. John's baptism was meant to point to a person. And how is this person described? I love this. Verse 27. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. If you get nothing else today, please get this. John's attitude... JB, right? John's attitude is at the heart of Christian discipleship. He recognized something that all of us must recognize or will be forced to one day. And what's that? What is it that we must recognize, you might ask? It's that we're not worthy of Christ. We're not. We are not worthy of Christ. We have sinned against the King of Kings. You know, I've, I've studied a lot on the relationship between Jewish rabbis and their pupils, their disciples. What's interesting is what would typically happen is there'd be like this up-and-coming rabbi. Oh, man, he's, he's legitimate, okay? And you'd have all these would-be disciples pursue the rabbi to study under him. What do we see Jesus doing in the Gospels? He's pursuing his disciples. Isn't that interesting? 
That was just a little bonus. The disciples, let's go back to this relationship in the first century between rabbis, teachers, and their disciples. The disciple or pupil did everything for the rabbi, his teacher. Did you know that? They prepared their meals, housing arrangements, where we're going to stay. The pupil, the disciple took care of all those things, all those important things. But there was something, and I bet you can guess, that the disciple was never asked to do. And what was that? Untie and remove the sandals from the feet of his rabbi. That job itself was reserved for the slave of the home. It was considered the lowest task, the most menial task. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. I'm not even worthy to do that. He's so much greater than I am that I'm not even fit to do the most menial task. John was truly in awe of Jesus. What humility. Amen? I'm not worthy. Now, the final item is a theme we've already seen. Again, the three things, right? John came to baptize with water. His baptism was to prepare people for somebody superior. And then thirdly, people didn't recognize the one he was preparing the way for, right? They were oblivious. That's the last thing. Recall John 1, 10 to 11. The world did not know him. The world that he made. Let that sink in. Jesus. I mean, did, did you listen to our passage this morning? Our verse? Everything that was made was made through him, and the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. The promised king, the Lord, would be rejected by mankind. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. That's our Savior, by the way. This was a dangerous calling for sure for John to prepare the way for one such as this. To align yourself with the one who would be rejected by the world was to invite what? Rejection. In fact, as we learn later on, it was John's association with Jesus that ultimately led to his death. John's purpose was to prepare people for Jesus. He was calling people to embrace his attitude toward Jesus, an attitude of unworthiness, of awe and wonder toward the king. All right, so let me ask this question. Do you know your purpose? Do you know your purpose? These two questions are so important. The questions of identity and purpose. Who am I? What am I to do with my life? Have you thought about that lately? Who am I? And what am I to do with my life? Where do you find your identity and purpose today? Friend, if the answer is not Jesus, then you will never know true joy and peace, for you'll never know God. Let Jesus change your identity today. Come to him in faith. Turn from sin and believe in Jesus. You know, I thought this would be helpful. These two questions related to identity and purpose are found where? Well, obviously they're found in God's Word. But they're found for the believer specifically in 2 Corinthians 5. This will be helpful. Because when someone asks us, 
what is your identity? Who are you? And what's your purpose? As Christians, we should be able to point them where? To the Bible. And what does the Bible say? Recall Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's our identity. In Christ, a, a new creation. What about our purpose? Well, for the believer's purpose, recall 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've looked to the cross and the empty tomb, if you've looked at yourself and acknowledged, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and if you've trusted in Christ, guess what? You're now a new creation. Amen? Newly formed and newly found in Christ, forgiven and adopted into God's family. Furthermore, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you, like Paul, are called, here's your purpose, to be a messenger of the king, to implore, to beg, to plead for the lost, to be reconciled to God through who? Through Jesus Christ. You know, I wonder how John the Baptist would answer these two questions for us. Who are you and what's your purpose? I think John would say, I'm the Lord's and my purpose is to make him known. I'm the Lord's and my purpose is to what? To make him known. He might even condense it down to one word. And what, that, what could that word be, I wonder? Witness. Witness. John was a witness to Christ. His purpose was to witness to Christ. Is that you? Are you a witness for Jesus? There is no greater calling. Amen? There is no greater calling than to declare the matchless worth of Jesus to a world unworthy of him. Here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus came for the unworthy. Amen? You were thinking, well, then who can be so? We're all unworthy. The good news is that Jesus came for the unworthy. He came for sinners. Jesus is good news for sinners. Why? Because he died for sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what would you say to these two questions today? Who are you and what's your purpose? If, if. You've trusted in Jesus. What? What? If you trusted in Jesus, what? You're forgiven. You're a child of God. You're part of God's family. If you've not trusted in Jesus, how would you answer this question? I'll answer it for you from God's word. You're lost and you're separated from God, the living God, the one true God. Jesus came to make a way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled, brought back into fellowship with God. Jesus came to change our identity. No longer enemies of God, but friends of God, children of God. And Jesus came to give us a new purpose, to declare him to the world. So come to Jesus, behold and believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a sending God. That you sent John to bear witness and prepare the way for Jesus. And Father, you sent the Son, Jesus, who came and lived a perfect life 
A life that we cannot live because we're sinners. And Father, you sent your Son ultimately to die. To take your wrath upon himself in our place. And then Jesus, after you died and rose again, you ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Father, you and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to your people and to be with your people, helping your people to live like Christ. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that we would find our identity in Jesus and our purpose in Jesus. And I pray that we, like John, would be faithful witnesses of the good news, that we would go into this week convicted of a lack of witness, re-energized by your word and your spirit to declare boldly, to confess freely that Jesus is the way. He is the light that is broken into the darkness and that salvation can be found in no other name but his. Father, give us a greater urgency for the lost. Help us to see the lost through your eyes. Help us to realize that eternities are at stake. Father, send us into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our places of work, even send us across the world to be witnesses for your Son, who is most worthy. And I pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said.